We pick up in the middle of our story in Acts chapter 21, following the account of Paul. Now, Paul has made his way to Jerusalem. He goes to drop off uh, some of the financial aid that he's collected from the Gentile churches. He brings these uh, to the leaders of the church, uh, and they receive that. Paul shares with them what is happening uh, in the Gentile churches, and they're excited about it. They see that the Lord is doing great things. Uh, But also in the midst of this, they want Paul to recognize, you know, that the Lord is also doing great things in the Jewish church. In this group of of people that they are zealous for the Lord, and there's been some uh, rumors that maybe Paul is uh, dismissing uh, the the Jewish uh, roots that they have, and so they ask Paul to take part in a vow uh, with these other four men. He does so not out of obligation to for the sake of salvation, but simply uh, to continue his voice uh, being heard in this group of people. Paul's obedience to this to the recommendation of this group of men is not there so that he might. Uh, have salvation. It's not there so he might prove that the Jewish way is really this valid way, but rather it, Paul's obedience there to this group is simply there. Uh, he, he partakes in this for the sake of his hearers so that the mission of God might go forward. Now, Paul, it's clear throughout scripture that he has never said, oh, you, you can't uh, participate. He's not preventing these Jews from participating in these Uh, Old Testament ceremonies, he simply is saying that those things don't save. And so Paul, in order to demonstrate that he's not preventing some of these things, he participates in some of them. And as he's going to complete this uh, ceremony, this uh, purification ceremony, he makes his way into the temple there And he is spotted by some of these Jews from Asia. These guys have been following him around, uh, basically trying to stir up trouble for him. Anytime they're around, you know something bad's about to happen. And they find him, they grab him, they begin to start this riot uh, that's in the city. Everyone's all upset and yelling at Paul, and they're trying to beat him down. Uh, The soldiers get wind of this. The tribune, who is the head of that region, he uh, he's a, it's a military position. He sends down a centurion and some soldiers and he, this huge army to, to squash this riot that's beginning to happen. And the centurion, he doesn't really know what is happening. So he is trying to question Paul. He pulls Paul out of this group. And essentially, he's got to carry Paul up over his head because we're told in verse 35, they had to carry him because the crowd was so violent. This is how much opposition that Paul is uh, facing. Even the, the Jews are so bold that they're even willing to fight and try to get Paul when the Roman soldiers have him. I mean, a Roman soldier at that time was a pretty uh, fearsome uh, foe. You did not want to come up against Rome. You did not want to demonstrate against Rome. But here they were invested in trying to destroy Paul. It was at this moment uh, where they were seeing uh, their, a threat to their nation. They were seeing a threat to their place in Paul. And so they believe that they're going to take care of it. Now we come to our text this morning, and they get Paul, 
the soldiers, they get Paul, they are taking him away. We come and we read, verse 37, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Now, here's what you need to know about this situation. Look at the awareness that Paul has. His life is in danger. He is, he is already been beaten up quite a bit. His life is further under threat. The people are saying away with him. They want him to be destroyed. The tribune doesn't know who he is. He basically knows that this guy is the cause of a riot. And Paul has the awareness to ask this question. And he goes from someone who is in a situation where it seems like it's out of control to all of a sudden, Paul is the one who is in control of the situation. He is the one that is calling the shots. He is the one that is leading. And this happens because Paul is willing to be led by the Holy Spirit. He's not thinking his comfort first, but he's thinking Christ. Remember we talked about this last week? Christ has to come above our comfort. And there are lots of things that Jesus will ask us to do that will make us uncomfortable. But when we truly treasure Jesus above all things, when he is our heart's delight, when we are after him, we are willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. And here, Paul has this awareness. He could have just kept his mouth shut, been like, let's get away from those guys. But instead, he addresses the tribune, and he asks him this, may I say something to you? Now, the tribune, he's, he's taken back a bit because... Paul is addressing him in an educated Greek voice. It's not just some random guy. Paul is speaking to him in the highest level he can, a more formal Greek, in a polite manner. And all of a sudden, this guy's like, you don't seem like the type of person who's going to be a troublemaker. You're, you're not, you know, uh, this kind of common criminal here. What's the deal? This guy's taken back, and we kind of hear a little bit, about the assumptions that this tribune was making, right? The tribune, he's trying to figure out this whole time, who, who is this guy? Who is Paul? Why is this group rioting? And he makes some assumptions about who Paul is based on past events. Here's what the tribune asks him, verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now that just sounds like a crazy story, right? Because uh, you're just like, this is who he thought Paul was, and Paul's just kind of like this scrawny, broken little guy, and all of a sudden you would, you're like, that's definitely not the guy, especially coming in with this formal Greek. Now, here's what he's referencing to, uh, or referencing. A few, years, a few years earlier, there was a false prophet who came in, and this guy from Egypt, uh, he came to Jerusalem, and he gathered up this, this multitude. He had a following. He developed this group of people who were, who were following him around, and he turned these guys, uh, these followers, we're told, you know, we got 4,000 followers over here. He told them, here's what, here's what we're going to do. We are going to overthrow the city of Jerusalem. We are going to take over the palace. And so he gets these 4,000 guys and he leads them up to the Mount of Olives. You can read about this in Josephus. Uh, he, he, he records this. Uh, he leads this group of men up to the Mount of Olives. 
And he tells them there that you guys need to wait here uh, because this, this Egyptian guy tells them, I have the ability to speak the word. And when I do, the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall down flat. And then we can just all march in and we'll take over and we will uh, gain control of the palace and we will rule Jerusalem. And so he leads these guys out here to the Mount of Olives. They're there waiting. Now, meanwhile, Rome's having none of this. They, they, the Romans are not going to let this happen. They were extremely uh, quick to squash anything that would challenge their rule. And so Felix who's the Roman governor at this time, he sends troops against them and they kill 400 and capture 200 of the men. The guy who's the Egyptian, he escapes and they don't, he's never seen again. And so in that moment, uh, the people in Jerusalem, they assisted the Romans there in trying to catch these guys. And so they think upon Paul's uh, reappearance here, the Romans think like, oh, they must be all mad at this guy because he's the Egyptian who came in and tried to mess everything up. And so that's why they're trying to fight against him. Now, Paul, he hears this claim and he sets the record straight immediately. Look at what he says, verse 39. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So Paul does this first off. He declares himself, one, a Jew, two, from Tarsus in Cilicia. And then he tells us, and he tells the the tribune, as if the tribune didn't already know, that Tarsus is not an obscure city. So what Paul's saying here is, I have the right to be treated properly. This group of people, I'm not unaware of who they are, and also, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm not involved with that story. Now, in ancient times, the way that you were dealt with was often on the basis of the city in which you were born. If you were born in a prominent city, then you got better treatment. If you were born in a lesser city, you you didn't really get great treatment, right? This is why we have recorded for us in the scriptures, when Jesus is said to be be from Nazareth, the people are like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They're like, that place is a wreck. There's nothing good coming out of there. Why would we expect anything awesome to come out of that spot? They, they don't even judge him by what he has done. They just say, like, oh, that city's horrible. Like, he's probably horrible also. And so Paul, he comes out and he says, I'm from Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is a, prom, a prominent city in the first century. It's great politically, economically, uh, intellectually. It's got a huge, rich hub for uh, philosophy and thought. And so here, in this moment... In this moment, Paul stops the tribune and says, do, do, you know who I, do you know where I'm from? I'm, I'm not just a common criminal. He's establishing his credentials. Why? Well, not so he can avoid imprisonment, not so he can avoid death, because earlier we've seen that he talked to the Ephesian elders and they're crying and they're all upset that he's going to leave. And Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Don't you know that I am willing to be imprisoned and even killed for the sake of the gospel? Paul's ready. His mind is right. He's ready to execute. What Paul's chief concern here is not his safety. 
but the proclamation of the gospel. He's looking at this situation. There's an angry mob. He has the ability to speak into the life of this tribune. And then he says, let me speak to them. Let me have access to them. You see what happens here for Paul? He doesn't let difficulty distract him from his mission. And I think that's a word that we all need to hear. Because too often we operate on the path of least resistance. We operate in life on the basis of, if it's difficult, now nah, we're going another way. If there's not a clear path, oh, we can't go that route. But friends, we serve a God who breaks through barriers, who makes the impossible possible. No one has ever defeated death, and he just conquered it. Conquered death. There wasn't a way, and he made a way. So when we come up against difficulty, we don't need to say, that's a problem I need to turn around. We need to say, Jesus, do you want to destroy what's in my path so that I might obey you? Do you want to open a door here for me? We shouldn't look, again, for comfort, but to obey Christ. Things that are in our path are not necessarily bad. Jesus will tell you if he doesn't want you to go that way, if you're seeking him first. Paul makes this appeal, we're told, verse 40, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Right. So Paul here, he's given permission. He goes out on the steps. They're all rioting and they're all angry and shouting at him like, away with them, away with them, get rid of this guy. And at this time, uh, we don't live in this culture anymore where uh, orators had ways to calm crowds, but he would do a certain hand motion that everybody would know like he's going to speak and address them. So he would do like this sweet hand motion and then everybody would see that and then they would all be quiet because they wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, here, They come to a quiet place, and Paul addresses them, we're told, in the Hebrew language. Now, at this time, the Hebrew uh, language is not Hebrew, uh, but what, what was most commonly spoken here is Aramaic. And so he speaks to them in Aramaic and not Greek, right? We're, just, we're already told that he can speak Greek at a high level in a very uh, specific way that brings a lot of respect. But instead what he does is he speaks to them in a strategic way, in the way that they will most likely hear his voice, in the way that sounds most familiar to them. He meets them on their level. He speaks to them in Greek. Here's what he says. Verse 1, chapter 22. Stick with me here. We'll, we'll start to move real fast. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So Paul is speaking here as a Jew to other Jews. And so he doesn't address them in the way that he addressed the tribune. He doesn't address them in that way, but rather 
He wants to lay common ground between them. So he starts off addressing them in their own language, and as they hear it, they get even quieter because they're like, oh, oh, okay, we didn't expect this. They hear that he has something to say, and all of a sudden, it sounds more familiar. So maybe the things that they're being told by these uh, Jews who are from Asia, maybe that's, that's wrong. This guy is trying to respect the past. And here is how he opens up. He says this, brothers and fathers. What Paul does here is he includes those who are older than him and those who are younger than him, calling them as members of his family. We have a shared history. We have a shared background. We have a shared tradition. And then he says this, hear the defense that I now make before you. So the things that we're about to hear are his defense. Now, it's important for us to, sit, to, to see that what he's trying to defend is not uh, himself personally. He's not trying to defend or protect himself from future problems, but he's trying to make an explanation for the things that have been heard or have not been heard. He's trying to set the record straight. And anytime you're going to make a defense, anytime you're going to communicate from this uh, perspective as a Christian, this includes the proclamation of the gospel. Right? Because later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, brothers, you've, you've heard the gospel. I've heard it. I've received it. I stand in it, and now I proclaim it to you. All of these different actions that Paul is currently entertaining with the gospel, here he uses it to operate out of again. He's making a defense, and so he defends from the gospel. And so he doesn't just tell stories about, you know, here's why you shouldn't, shouldn't beat me or this or that. He says, here's, here's my testimony. Here's what has happened to me, and here's who the real Jesus is. So he goes on, verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So first thing he does, he mentions he's born into a Jewish family. I'm a Jew. I'm born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Um, he's educated not only is he a Jew, but he's educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So he's saying, not only am I already a Jew by birth, not only am I in the culture already, but I, my rabbinic education was with Gamaliel, who is um, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, a, uh, a member of the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel is the most significant and influential uh, Pharisee in the first century. He is, uh, he, he is like the rock star guy that you wanted to study with. Paul says, that was my life. I studied with him. Like, I was his student, his pupil. Beyond that, he says, I studied with Gamaliel according to the strict law of our fathers. 
Again, bringing that, bringing that uh, shared history together, our fathers. He doesn't say your fathers. He's not saying I'm, I'm divorcing the, the roots that you have experienced. He says our fathers. And then he says this, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So he says his zeal for God, for the attack uh, that he's experiencing today, he says, my zeal for God was the same as yours. He says, I, I know where you're coming from. I know what you're experiencing because I was once that person. He goes on to explain. Verse 4, I was persecuted. I persecuted this way. When he says this way, that means Christians. That's the, what they ended up calling the church, the way, uh, the way of Jesus. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then, from them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul says, Here, here's how zealous I was. You think you guys, you think you guys are upset Paul says, I was more upset than you were ever were. I was more zealous. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. He's like, I don't even care if it was a man or a woman. It could be anybody. Like, I was going to take them out. Paul is listing out his credentials so he can show how much he identifies with who they are. He's listing these things out because... He wants them to see he's already gone further than they could ever go. And where it ends is not where they think. Beyond this, Paul claims that the current high priest and that the whole council of elders, they can bear witness. He's like, look, like if you don't think I'm telling the truth, you can go ask them. They're all like right there. You can just go over there and say, like, did you guys do this? Did, was Paul really like this? But beyond that, what Paul was telling them is, I am familiar with the highest aspects, the highest levels of Jewish life, things that you people will never get close to. This guy was a member of the Sanhedrin myself. I've been there. I work closely together with them to persecute the church in Damascus and to bring these people who are in Damascus, to Jerusalem to be punished. And then we get to the turn. In verse 6, here's what happened. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So Paul tells us a couple things, we, and we get a couple glimpses into the story that we have in Acts 9 that maybe he didn't tell us before. He, this happens about noon. He's on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. And about noon, the brightest time of the day, he sees this bright light from heaven, which supernaturally is brighter than the sun. It shines around him, and he has this experience with the risen Christ who calls him out and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he doesn't know who it is, and so he asks for clarity. And Jesus responds, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul is testifying to what has happened in his life. How far he has been in walking as a member of the, the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin Council, a persecutor of the church, and now he meets Jesus himself, and he realizes he's been going in the wrong direction. We get some insight further in verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Paul highlights this for us and for his crowd because he wants the understanding to be that this wasn't a vision. This wasn't something where he was like having this dream and nobody else saw it, but that others witnessed this. Paul was physically blinded for a time as the result. You know, you don't get physically blinded just from like a vision. Paul is physically blinded as the result of his experience with the risen Christ. Now, Paul's companions, he tells them, have a partial experience. They didn't get the same level of access as Paul got, but they got enough to know that this was real. They see a bright light, they don't see the risen Christ. They hear the sound, but they don't hear exactly what Jesus is saying. They don't understand the voice of the one speaking. I don't know if that was like, you know, uh, like Peanuts Snoopy moment where like the teacher's talking, and they're, they're like, something's happening over there. I, I imagine it was probably something like that. Uh, but Paul's companions here, they don't get the same access that he did. But no matter, we see that Paul's experience left him changed. It left him transformed. Just this one experience with the risen Christ, because here's what he says. Verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? As soon as he hears he's in the wrong direction, he's ready to obey. He knows that Jesus is in charge and that he's not in charge. This is what it looks like for us to be Christians, for us to come to faith in Christ. We're not asking God, Lord, if you have time, if you could give me a couple minutes, like I got some plans I want to submit to you so that you can approve them and then we can move these things along. Here's where I want to go with things. No, the question that we are always asking is, what shall I do, Lord? What do you want to accomplish? What are you doing? Where are you working? As Christians, we want to follow what Jesus is doing. We don't want to come up with our own ideas. We can come up with good ideas all day long, but we want God's ideas. No good ideas, God's ideas. All of God's ideas are always the best ideas. And so when we're pursuing Christ, we want to join him in what he is doing and being a part of that. If you are joining Jesus in what he is already doing, it's always going to be successful. If you're trying to submit your plans to Christ, 
and try to convince him that he ought to join your plans, that's probably not going to go so well. It's not going to be successful. The Lord is already working ahead of you. Right? This is exactly what he has planned for Paul. Because here's what he responds to Paul. Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Jesus already had a plan. All Paul needs to do is go and obey. He doesn't need Paul's suggestions. Verse 11, And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led, into, led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. Verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. Now, here we get the experience of Paul making his way to Damascus. This man, Ananias, uh, is described in a little bit of a different way than he is in Acts 9. Uh, in, in Acts 9, we're told, uh, Luke tells us that Ananias, uh, he also receives a vision from the Lord, and Ananias is like scared to go to Paul because he knows how intense Paul was in persecuting the church. Here, Paul doesn't share anything about that because what's most important for the Jews, for his audience to hear, is that Ananias is a keeper of the law. He's a devout man, someone who could, they could respect and someone who those in the area respected. He doesn't introduce Ananias as a disciple of Jesus, but he says this guy's a devout uh, observer of the law. He's well spoken of. He's highly respected by the Jews there. Listen to his testimony. And because Ananias is one who's invested in obeying the God of Israel, then he's bringing more credibility to Paul's claims. Verse, uh, we continue here in verse 13. Paul says, here's what Ananias told him, brother Saul, receive your sight. So Ananias is is acknowledging that Paul has been changed and transformed, calling him brother. Uh, There's this shared history together. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. Verse 14, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now it gets real. Because up until this point, Paul has been telling this story, and it's only been his testimony. And now he says, here's another man who's a devout observer of the law, who's well-respected by the Jews in the area, and this man, who you can trust, he has a message from the Lord also. Now, this is a message that Paul had already heard from the Lord himself, but this, uh, in this uh, moment, Ananias, he becomes uh, a messenger from God to Paul, confirming what Paul had already heard. Jesus already told him, here's what he wanted him to do. And here's how Paul describes it. He says this, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Remember, he's speaking to this Jewish audience. And so he's saying, the God of Israel, the one who has ordained all things, he is the one who I'm giving you this message from right now. And he wants you to know his will, what he's doing, what he's accomplishing. Paul's highlighting that it's not his message. Paul's highlighting that it's not Ananias' message. He is simply declaring what belongs to God already. And this only comes from God. 
And see, he roots himself in Ananias in the historic faith. He's trying to highlight that they have not deviated from the God of Israel. This is all in God's plan he's continuing on. And here's what he's told. He's appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So what he's saying is, one, he's accomplishing what he's supposed to do here. He's being a witness of what he's seen and heard. So he's saying, I'm obeying what God's will is by telling you what I've seen and heard. But we jump over some of these things quickly because we don't sit in this context. He drops a major bomb in the midst of this audience here when he says this. He's appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. To see the righteous one. Paul was chosen to know God's will in a direct way, in a personal way, and he's enabled to see the risen Christ, to hear the words from his mouth, but the description of how Paul shares it is a massive bomb that he drops in the middle of this audience. The righteous one is a title that is connected to the Messiah. This long-awaited figure. This, was, uh, this title was brought about through several spots in the Old Testament. Uh, he, he, I'm going to give you two of them. Isaiah uh, 53.11. This is a description of the suffering servant. All of Israel knew that God was going to bring a servant who would suffer, but he, uh, Paul is helping them see that this is brought into alignment as the Messiah was not really considered one who would suffer. Here's, here's what it's described in Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's through the righteous one that many will be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, this would have been most uh, effective them hearing this word because not long before this, They were experiencing a time where the crowd was gathered and all of Israel was waiting in expectation for the righteous one, the coming Messiah. And here the crowd is gathered again, this time to try to put Paul away. But the other thing that's in the back of Paul's mind is one of the other passages where they, they would have experienced this. He's calling this to their memories. 
that were not far off in Zechariah 9.9. Not long before this instance, they would have gathered in participation of this verse. As we see this at Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Paul is saying this has already been fulfilled in your presence. The righteous one has already come. You've missed it. You were there. And all that Paul is trying to do is to redirect their attention to that Sunday. So many years before, where Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey, coming up and making his way up to the Temple Mount into the area where they now stand. Everything about what Paul is doing is pointing to Christ and Christ's arrival. And he's just leaving these clues to help them remember. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at the claims that he's made. And because Paul has been changed, because Paul has been transformed, because Paul has had a glimpse of the righteous one, we see that then Paul obeys Jesus and he obeys the commands of Ananias. As we read in verse 16, Ananias tells him, Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So he's saying, become, uh, make this full change, this life change. Your eyes have been opened spiritually, physically. Express that in repentance towards God in baptism. Verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And when I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So Paul gives us another glimpse into something that has happened, another, his second experience with the risen Christ. This time we're told, this is when he returns to Jerusalem. So this is three years after his initial conversion. He's in the temple praying. The Lord gives him wisdom and says, look, like you need to get out of here because they're not going to receive your testimony about, uh, about me. You're going to share it. I, I want you to get out of here. And what Paul is doing here is laying further groundwork. Because by receiving a vision while Paul is in the temple, what he's doing essentially is he's aligning himself with Samuel, who was a prophet, and he's aligning himself uh, with the vision that Isaiah receives in chapter 6. So he's saying, like, like these prophets of old have received visions in their time in the temple, here again I stand in the temple and I am operating in this manner. But not only is he making that claim, he's also saying, by the way that he's explaining this, is that Jesus is the true and greater Lord of the temple than, and the fulfillment over the God of Israel who, who they're fulfilling these sacrifices for. He's saying Jesus is the one who ultimately rules and reigns over the temple now. He takes the place 
of God speaking in the temple. Jesus is God, but he is the one who is in charge, something that would be a monumental shift in their minds. Now, this is important because Paul knows the next couple things he's going to say are not going to be very popular, so he needs to have as much backing as possible. Verse 19, And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. So so he's just trying to say, he reminded, uh, he's having this conversation with with Jesus like about how he, he's like, look, like I'm willing to get beaten. It's fine. I'm willing to take it. I know this is what I'm supposed to do. They they know what I'm about. They're going to listen to me. He says, uh, they, they know who I am. Verse 20, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So Paul's trying to remind them that he's been, you know, he's been faithful to preach to the Jews, but God has other plans. Here's what it says. Verse 21, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now Paul restates the Lord's will in the most straightforward way possible. He's making the claim now that Jesus is saying you're going to specifically move away from the Jews because they're going to come against you and you're going to go to the Gentiles, but not only to the Gentiles, you're going to go to the farthest reaches of the Gentiles. Go far away. What he's highlighting there is he's like, where there's not really very much Jewish influence. So the point that he's making is we're not going to try to convert them to be Jews. You see, because for, for the Jews, they were okay if you converted as a Gentile to be a Jew. That was fine. You were coming in and you were accepting that their way was more superior. So they, they were fine with that. But Jesus' commands are, get out of here where that's not going to be a possibility. No one's going no to convert to be a Jew out there. There's not the resources, the time. There's not the discipleship that could happen. What Paul does here is he acts as a true ambassador. And you need to hear this. You need to hear this. He acts as a true ambassador. Because the job of an ambassador is to simply convey the message that he's given. He doesn't get to change it based upon the context. If it's bad news, got to bring the bad news. If it's good news, got to bring the good news. But the job of the ambassador is not to massage the message, not to change the mission for the sake of the audience, but to be faithful to communicate that which he is told. He knows that they're not going to like this. He knows his personal safety is at risk, but he chooses to obey the Lord. He's trying to explain this to them. Verse 22, we see the reaction. Up to this word, they listened to him. They were like, we're with you, we're with you, we're with you. But as soon as it got to the Gentiles, nope. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So now they want to kill him again. 
And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So the Jews, they were fine if the Gentiles were going to convert to be Jews. But that the Gentiles would have access to the historical faith to the God of Israel without having to become Jews was incredibly offensive. Because this implied that the Jews and the Gentiles were equal, that they had equal access to God, that they didn't have to jump through the hoops of becoming Jews, of keeping the law. They could come to God on the same terms, not by their works, but by faith in Christ. Right? This is why Jesus gives us the parable of these men who are working out in the heat of the day. They're commissioned and they're going to be paid a day's wage. And there are some who come, like, you know, in, towards the end of the day. And then when they all line up to get paid, they get paid the same. And some of the guys who started earlier in the day are, like, all complaining, like, hey, like, what's the deal? Like, they got the same amount, but they didn't get, they, like, only worked, like, after all the hard work was done. And Jesus tells them, like, didn't you, didn't you sign up for, like, a day's wage? Like, I offered them what I offered them, and these people, they came later, but they're going to get the same amount because it's my decision. You see, often the attitude that we can have is to say, mm, you guys don't really deserve that as much. You need to work a little bit harder over here. We can be offended that good people... Uh, you know, you know, when we look at sinners and it's like, oh, okay, like, you, you have to get saved the same way. You have to trust in Christ the same way. We want people sometimes to jump through hoops. Like, oh, you got to work a little bit harder for that because, you know, like, I had to do all the hard work. You got to pay your dues. Jesus doesn't care about dues. He paid for everything. He doesn't want you to pay your dues. He just wants you to come and enjoy him and know him. And too often, we want to make people pay the same price that we had to pay, struggle through the same things that we had to struggle through. But that's not Jesus' way. Jesus wants to bring life. He wants to bring freedom to those who are oppressed. Now, these men, they're upset, flinging dust into the air, this act of warning, tearing their clothes off. Now, the tribune, he doesn't know what's happening still because Paul's speaking in Aramaic. So the whole time, like, he doesn't even get to follow it. All of a sudden, they're, like, listening to him, listening to him, listening to him. And all of a sudden, it's like, let's kill this guy. And everybody's, like, shouting and throwing stuff all of a sudden. He must have just been like, I have zero idea what's happening here. But, like, my main job is to crush this riot because his job was on the line. His life was on the line. And so he says, let's take Paul in. We're going to examine him by flogging. This was uh, this um, idea of whipping Paul, scourging him uh, with these whips with pieces of bone um, or metal attached to them in kind of a way of torturing them, hoping, I guess, that they would uh, talk as the result. Something that Jesus experienced uh, in his life as he paid for our sin. But the ironic thing is this about this, this section. Paul is there arguing on behalf 
of Christ. Paul's there arguing on the basis of the Romans who are considered Gentiles. He's arguing so that they might come to salvation. And the Jews are all mad and upset about it because they want to keep a divide. They want the Romans out. And Paul says, they need to come to Christ and be changed and transformed. You want them out. And the Roman tribune, he doesn't know what's happening, but he, knows, he doesn't know that Paul is on his side. Paul is there for the Gentiles. He's trying, he's trying to bring the people, the Jewish people, to a place of understanding that, that they, the Gentiles have access to Christ, that they would be incorporated in through Jesus' work at the cross. And so they're going to uh, flog Paul. Verse 25, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, it is, is it lawful for you to flog a, Roman, a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Earlier, Paul has told us that he is a citizen of Tarsus. But now he's also making this claim that he's a Roman citizen. Now, this, uh, at this time in Roman history, uh, there was the possibility for full dual citizenship. And Paul could appeal to that citizenship to be delivered from this punishment. Uh, the punishments that were given out uh, were much more severe for those who were not Roman citizens. And so Paul says, you know, this is a, a situation where, you know, I need to bring to your attention that I, I shouldn't be uh, whipped here. But it gets a little bit more intense than that because as he makes this claim, uh, the centurion finds out and, and then he goes up the chain of command to the tribune and says like, dude, what are you going to do right here? Like, this is, like, this is really bad if you're going to do this. Because it was unlawful to, to bring this sort of punishment to a Roman citizen. And so the tribune comes down and he asks, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, yeah. Now, Paul, uh, he would have either had a way to produce uh, some sort of document that had his citizenship that would show that he was a Roman citizen and he was a Roman citizen by birth. So he could have either proven it or they could have taken his word for it because basically like the pen punishment, if it found out that you weren't, was either like really crazy severe or you just got killed. So you're rolling the dice um, here with that. But it seems that the tribune is kind of mocking Paul's claim to citizenship a bit here. Because here's how he answers. He's like, I, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. He, he's trying to say, like, you, you might be a citizen, but you're probably like a second-class citizen because, you know, look at you. Like, everybody hates you. Everybody wants to kill you here. You've been beat up a whole bunch already. You're pretty scrawny looking. 
like you're probably a citizen on the basis of like now like they pretty much let anybody be a citizen you know probably didn't have to pay very much he's like i had to pay a lot to get this so it means a lot to me he's basically saying like don't don't like and don't insult me don't insult rome kind of coming at him with with this attitude but paul says i'm a citizen by birth in this instant, he immediately, be, he, he immediately outranked the commander. He immediately outranked this tribune because he's like, you, got, you, got, you bought into this, but I'm a citizen by birth. I was born into this. His citizenship was at a higher level. He outranked him. And so, verse 29, those who are about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. You weren't even allowed to have this public, like, binding of a Roman citizen. So, like, they're, like, all of a sudden, like, oh, shoot, what did we do? We're in trouble. They got to figure out another plan. (laughs) Both of these groups, they don't know what they're doing. The Jews wanted to kill Paul because they thought Paul was coming against their place, their nation, the temple, the God of Israel, the traditions. And so again and again, two times we hear them shouting, away with him! Here they say, away with him. He's not fit to live. They want him to die. Last week, we said that they were very similar to the words of the crowd that surrounded Jesus in his last week, shouting, crucify, because Jesus was a threat to their system. Rome doesn't know what to do with him because they're like, we don't even know who you are and we don't know what the problem is here. But we do know that Rome was willing to squash this riot, to flex their muscle, to crush any rebellion with an iron fist. And this is where it put the Jews and the Romans at odds together. Because the Jews had the ability to operate under Rome with a certain amount of freedom. They were able to have their place in their nation. They were, Rome let them do their thing as long as they didn't riot. They hated the Romans. They wanted to be out from under the Romans. They wanted nothing more than for the Romans to be gone. Several times throughout their history, they tried different revolts, revolutions, where they tried to overthrow Rome. And they got crushed each time. And Rome wanted to flex its military might to rule and reign. They're in the same situation. They've always been looking, uh, Israel's always been looking for freedom from Rome. This was the case at that very first Palm Sunday that Paul was referencing earlier when he spoke of Zechariah 9.9. It was there 
When there was this, the, the city was, was beginning to grow with people, people were coming in for Passover. There were a ton more people. Rome was on guard because they were, they were like, oh shoot, like there's so many people here. They had to really bolster their numbers to make sure that they had a tight grip on everything. And as Jesus came into the city that morning, riding on a donkey, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, the crowds went before him. They were excited. And they were shouting something different at this moment. They were shouting this, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Cut down palm branches and they waved them and they laid them down before the donkey to walk on. Now, for you and I, this just seems like great, like some creative people. But what they were doing here was essentially their same frustration that they have in their current situation. As Jesus makes their way, his way down from the Mount of Olives, into the Kidron Valley, and he's crossing this brook, coming up into the gate. They're, they're laying down these, these palm branches. Historically, the palm was on their money. It's everywhere in their culture. It's a symbol of freedom, used in the Maccabean revolts. And they're saying here, shouting out this messianic psalm, Hosanna, to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save now. They're shouting, save now, save us, save us, please. They're not just saying some fun thing. They're literally saying, save us. And Jesus is walking on the symbols of freedom and they're holding. They think that Jesus is coming in to save them from the Romans. This is why they're so excited. This is who we waited for. They were expecting to see their king seated on a throne and to overthrow Rome, but Jesus, he had a bigger idea. They didn't need freedom from Rome. They needed freedom from sin. Jesus wasn't going to rule on this temporary throne over Rome. He's going to defeat sin and death and reconcile us to God. It's not about some tiny army. And so this Palm Sunday, where Jesus comes in in his triumphal entry, it's only a foreshadowing of a greater event. And this is what Paul's, he's trying to give them echoes of this in his speech. But here's the event that we look to in Revelation 7. You want to flip over there? We'll end with this. Revelation 7, 9. We see this eternal Palm Sunday. This is what Paul's trying to get them to understand. You don't need freedom from Rome. You need freedom from sin. 
Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes, and all and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see what's happening here? This is what Paul is talking about in his speech. He's trying to bring to their minds that all of the nations, not just the Jews, they will be gathered together, just like they're gathered here to oppose Paul. They will be gathered together. They're not going to be scattered throughout these foreign lands. They'll all be made clean. There won't be any division like the Jews are pushing for here. And they won't be shouting, away with him. They won't be shouting, crucify him. But they will be worshiping with one voice. Paul sees that this is where it all ends. As Jesus told him, go to the nations, proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, he's trying to bring the Jews into the fact that this is where it's ending. There will be freedom, but it's not going to be from Rome. Rome isn't even here. They're thrashed. All the nations are gathered together. All tribes, all peoples, all languages to worship. You see, if Jesus overthrew Rome at his triumphal entry, if he came in and he decided, yeah, let's just get rid of them, none of us would ever have the opportunity to experience this eternal Palm Sunday. We'd never get to experience the waving of palms showing our freedom that we have because of Jesus. Likewise, we're told that we have an eternal citizenship in heaven. We don't need to find our identities as citizens of Rome, citizens of Tarsus, our identity in this Jewish history, but that we are citizens of heaven. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We have an eternal citizenship. We have an eternal Palm Sunday. And we have an everlasting freedom that is granted to us through the work of Christ. Our job now, as citizens of the household of faith, is to have the same question day after day, 
moment after moment that Paul had for Jesus. What do you want me to do? I'm going to go. Show me what to do. You will never experience more joy than when you are pursuing the risen Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word that you've given us. We're thankful for your call to follow you. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have rescued us. You've made us your own. You've brought us into that household of faith. And we want to live unto your glory. Change us, transform us as we pursue you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen.